intention, or sometimes rise or white right thought. And um, it's a topic I love, and so I thought I'd talk a little bit about both this, both aspects of thought and how thought manifests as intention. Huge topics, so I can only really touch on a little bit of it. But so to to talk about wise thought, right intention. I have to or want to need to go back or to the so-called first step of this eightfold path circle. It's a circle and still the way the Buddha talked about it where you kind of enter into it what Jack spoke about the first night as um, wise understanding, wise view, and uh, so I want to talk about that a minute to start from there. But the first thing I want to say is how one of the reasons I love the format of the Buddhist teachings as a way of uh, giving us support to understand how our mind works and to come into harmony with reality is because even though it may seem really complicated when you look at all the books and the lists and everything, in some way I find it incredibly elegant and simple, not easy, but simple. And so to my understanding, the liberation of heart-mind the Buddha is talking about, that we're, you know, we're cultivating this practice to re-recognize, isn't um, a liberation from the world. It's not a liberation you know, to get away from life and ourselves. It's a liberation of freedom from our misunderstanding of the world, of ourselves, of what's really true. And this misunderstanding stems very basically from misperceiving, from recognizing what's happening in a moment, from recognizing our experience inaccurately. And then from the way we recognize experience, that we think about it and we construct the world and we act and we react and have emotions. Can you relate to that? I'll give examples. But so when one of the, defi- one of the translations of the first entry into the Eightfold Mandala, if you want to call it that, I actually really love in this context the translation of right view because I find it actually quite literal. That he's saying that when we recognize accurately our view, our perception, our recognition of experience, when it's accurate, when it's aligned with how things are, without any effort, the natural result of that is wise thought wise intention, leading, as Larry said last night, into how we act in the world. Into, and, and the support for that, the key to recognizing accurately, of course, is mindfulness, supported by concentration, supported by energy, supported by effort. So the elegance I love is that when simply the, the freedom, the liberation of our heart and mind isn't about getting rid of, changing, digging up, hating, clinging, figuring it all, you know, it's 
not about our striving and gaining wisdom, you know, and digging out all the kalesas. It's about the commitment of mindful awareness, moment after moment after moment, and then learning to trust that that steadiness of clear awareness, the way things are, reveals itself. Because, duh, it's already that's how it is. It's, it's not like we're permanent, and if we practice hard enough, we become impermanent. And then we're free, you know, but we're scared. We don't want to be impermanent. It's, you know, already. That's how it is. So we are not recognizing is what keeps leading us into confusion. So Buddhism isn't about learning and adapting a new set of beliefs. Though God knows there's plenty of information and plenty of beliefs we've been telling you you can read. There's plenty to take on. But it's to see, does this help me? Does this lead to freedom in the moment of heart and mind? Does this lead to more happiness and peace, or does this lead to more confusion and suffering? And the ultimate knowing is right here in our own hearts and minds. If we're not trying to make our experience match some description. We take the descriptions as a tool, as an advice, as a reference, and then try it for ourselves, right? So I just find that, I just love it, because it's really so simple. And we're putting in huge effort, it's true, but there's actually much less that we need to do. Because if you think you have to personally, with your little brain, figure it all out, absolutely understand it all, get it all logical, and then put it into practice moment by moment by moment, and actualize impermanence, actualize non-self, actualize unreliability. You don't know what the heck it means, but you've got to actualize it moment to moment. Dig up greed, get rid of hatred, cut through the delusion, and get going. You know, And every time those things come up, it's because you've personally failed. I mean, my God, it's exhausting. And it's also impossible. But what's it like to start to have the trust that if we can just commit our intention to cultivating a steadiness of this loving awareness, of mindful awareness, that things as they have come to be in this moment reveal themselves naturally. We don't have a clue how they are. So quit looking for settle into with open heart and mind and the truth reveals itself. Just moment after moment after moment. It's actually so much more trustworthy. So in terms of this, how right view, accurate perception leads to wise thought or wise intention and into wise action and into wise mindfulness. Let me just talk a little bit about thought in general. So I know we talked to some in the instructions. And this morning, in the, in the guided meditation, it's one of those where really opening into that space of awareness where things just come and go, thoughts, sensations, moods, sounds, whatever's coming and going, right? The thought arises like a little star. It's gone. No thought matters. And sometimes people ask, well, if no thought matters at all, how do we do anything? What thought 
does matter. How, and, and if no thought matters at all, how do we get into such a mess? So both, how do we get into such a mess, but also how do we use thought? Because we do have to make decisions. We do act, as Larry talked about so beautifully last night. So to start describing a little how thoughts work, but first I want to read this great description of thought from Dingo Kensi Rinpoche. This mind is always being carried away by one delusion after another. Now, you don't have to agree with this if it's not your experience. Thoughts of hatred or attachment suddenly arise without warning, triggered off by circumstances, and unless seen clearly, they quickly take root and proliferate, reinforcing the habitual predominance of, of hatred, of ill will, or attachment in the mind. However, however strong these thoughts may seem, they are just thoughts and will eventually dissolve back into emptiness. Have you noticed that? Did you notice that this morning? Once you recognize the intrinsic nature of the mind, that empty, wakeful, aware nature, these thoughts that seem to disappear and appear all the time can no longer fool you. As clouds form, last a while, and then dissolve back in the empty sky, so deluded thoughts arise, remain a while, and then vanish in the voidness, the emptiness of mind. In reality, nothing at all has happened. Can you get a sense of that? Or if it makes you crazy, get a sense of that? In reality, nothing at all has happened. So that's from the, the level of this kind of, you call it, ultimate level where it just... So then what happens? That we get so carried away. And I, I, I love how this works. When the, when the Buddha, where's my notes? He talked about, it all starts with this element of perception, of recognition. So anything that happens, there's a sound. We hear it, we're aware of sound, fine. And perception's a natural mental function that almost immediately with it will know it's a bird or that's a motorcycle, or I don't know what it is, and you know you don't know what it is. Just that recognition, so simple. You know, that happens with, with pretty much everything. It, it's useful, huh? It's functional. It helps us kind of know where to come and sit when you come in here. It helps you actually find your way in here. It helps you, you know, know what we're doing. It helps us communicate. It's very useful. And often... It's not accurate, the perception. Have you noticed that? That what we perceive, the Buddha goes on to say, we think about. What we think about, the tendency is to complicate with views and assumptions and connections and memories. Then we start to have the feelings and the emotions that go with that complication. And then that leads into like a solidification, a view of describing our world. The thoughts describe our world, both for useful and not. And then from that, it coheres into a thought that leads to an intention, a movement, and about to that leads to action. So it's useful that, that the thoughts can describe and define our world. As I said, you know, you hear the bell, you know, bell. You have a sense of the time of day. You're a person 
here on a retreat in Yucca Valley, and it's 7.20, and it's time to come into the meditation hall and listen to a talk. That's a huge amount of thoughts describing a whole experience, isn't it? Useful. Nothing wrong with that when we know that's what's happening. But often, and and I'm going to use mostly simple retreat examples here because I, I deliberately want to try and give a sense of how what we're doing here, just paying attention to our thoughts and our movements and our sense perceptions over and over and over, really is extremely profound, very powerful into opening our minds and hearts into recognizing in a more accurate way at times. So, so very often, the perception may not be accurate, but we don't know that often. So a simple example, I remember another retreat, although similar things have happened here, three months, where um, the, the interview schedules go up, same as here, and there was a person that I knew who was really like, said she had this thing about being overlooked for interviews, you know, not, not getting interviews when she was supposed to be, a whole thing about she was a person who was ignored. And so twice in a row, she would go on her day, look at the interview sheet, look at the interview sheet, looking for her name and not see it and get really upset, you know. Oh, no, how could they overlook me again? Even last time I talked to her about, and really upset. Can, can you relate? And then how could they do it and the thoughts and the pain and the sadness and the blame and all of this stuff? Writing notes to us, how could you do it? And then we have a conversation and, you know, and we say, no, your name's up there. Don't tell me. I looked, I looked. And if, if, if it's too late, if the paper's gone, you'll never convince a person. But sometimes, you know, the paper's there. You can, come on, let's just have a look. Oh my God, how could that be? And as soon as you see, she sees her name, all of that story, all of that construction is gone, right? Because it was based on an inaccurate perception. Of course, a new one comes in. I am so stupid. I am so embarrassed. You know, and a whole new one comes in. Well, this is one of the ways thought is working a lot during the day. Can you, have you noticed that at all? And what the Buddha goes on to say is that when, it, when it's inaccurate and we don't recognize it, it's when we get into so much trouble and confusion. Now, the, the stories, the descriptions of our reality are, of course, based on our own personal experience. We all have our personal histories, and as Larry was talking about last night, we all have our different cultural histories, and you know, and so a group of people, like it was a great example of your board of directors coming together. There's nothing right or wrong, but people each have a very different set of story of history that's going to affect their perceptions and the description they make of the world and what's you know, the useful thing to do that's gonna affect their decisions. Well, there's seven billion of us doing this. What's more amazing is how often we kind of get on the same page enough. Now, knowing that this is what is happening is fine. There's nothing wrong with that, knowing this. And the Buddha talks about not being attached to views. You know, say, well, this is really how I think it should be based on all my experience, and I'm sure of it. But knowing that 
you know, my perception is colored by my past experience, my views, the things that I like, and knowing someone else's is different. Coming to agreement, that's another thing, but at least having that. But what the Buddha is talking about on a very um, subtle, I say pervasive, not all the time, a pervasive level, is a set of misperceptions that we really don't see through We don't recognize they're there. And so our unconscious description of ourselves in the world really isn't accurate. And this is where we can fall into suffering and confusion. Like Ajahn Chah, who's so so, earthy, he picks up up a vase, pretend this is a vase. And he says, you know, you look at this vase, and you think it's really beautiful or it's really ugly, or it's boring, or whatever. It's just a phase. It doesn't care. It's you who are making yourselves crazy about everything. (laughs) There's a Zen story. We have to give another Zen story. I don't know if it's true, but it's a typical kind of Zen master story in Japan. And some wild, um, aggressive samurai warrior came to this Zen master and just kind of wild and abusing him and carrying on and basically ending up saying, you are a pig, you're a pig, which is like a huge insult, you know, and carrying on and threatening him. And the Zen master just stood there the way they do, or supposedly do, very calm and said, and you, sir, are a Buddha. Well, that, that stopped the samurai for a minute because I'm a Buddha? How can that be? And the Zen master said, well, a pig sees a pig. A Buddha sees a Buddha. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So when he, when uh, the basic misperceptions, and Wes mentioned this the other night, and I'm sure if you've done any practice or any reading of Buddhism at all, you're familiar with them, but I feel I must mention them, is impermanent, the impermanent changing nature of all experience. Not that things are kind of the same for a while and then later they'll go away. Constant flux. Constant flux is the way things are. Uh, one of the... Um, kind of labels for one of the powerful deep levels of insight is knowledge, the recognition of things as they have come to be in this moment. As they have come to be just now, all the causes and conditions that come together in this moment for each one of us to be sitting here with the particular sensations and the particular thoughts and the way that you feel and the moods and the clothes that you're wearing, What causes and conditions come together for that? Start trying to enumerate them, and you can never stop. It includes everything in the world that came together in this moment. And now this moment's already different, isn't it? Your sensations are subtly different. The words you're hearing are subtly different. Whatever moods are you're not hearing, you know, whatever's happening, it's again a little bit different. Things as they have come to be in this moment are like this, and now like this. But our habit, really, 
the misperception of not perceiving just this changing nature leads to assuming permanence. I was going to say all the time. See, that's how we talk. All the time we're assuming permanence. Nothing's all the time. <laughs> Nothing. Remember the other morning when someone was talking about you know, accepting and saying, well, I don't know how it feels. I accept it, but then later it's grumpy. Because we tend to think, I've done it. It's over. Finished. Now I understand, right? Have you had a seeing through an insight where it felt like something let go? And then even if we know, even if we know, somewhere back there the mind's going, finally, I'm done with that one, right? <laughs> and when it comes back, oh, I, I wasn't clinging. It's OK. I know it came back. Yeah, that's fine. Now, after 10 years, you say, oh, this is coming again. <laughs> I've worked on this in therapy. I've worked on this in rolfing. I've been through this on so many retreats. I really, like Wes was saying about our personality, which I love. You know, Semedo, Ajahn Semedo says, it's not our personality that gets enlightened. We're going to keep on seeing this stuff. <laughs> we think, it's, but it's coming and going, coming and going. But we assume permanence. When you're having a really lovely sitting, and then that little niggling pain in the back starts, the one that was there the first two days, the one that you thought you were going to run out of here screaming. But it went away for a while, and you thought, thank God. And now here it is again. Does your mind just go, in this moment, the arising of burning? Maybe, great for a moment. But doesn't it start to jump at, oh my god, how, how much longer in this sitting? There's no way I can be with this pain for the rest of these days. There's the, you know, the mind just does that. So noticing it. The same with um, the unreliability, the, the sense that um, pleasure is so fleeting that if we're putting our sense of uh, happiness of peace into pleasure, pleasant sensation, pleasant experience, getting We've talked about this. And again, we know it comes and goes, do we? We know that peace isn't about only getting pleasure, do we? <laughs> On some level, but it keeps getting more and more subtle. At least that's my experience, more subtle the ways I find. Oh, no, I'm really, I'm equanimous comes, it goes, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. That's cool. I know. It comes and goes. It comes and goes, right? I'm, I'm just in equanimity until something really doesn't work. <laughs> oh, okay. I guess the equanimity is gone, which is fine to see. But that unreliability, that unsatisfactoriness, if we try to get something out of changing experience that it can't offer, simply because it's always changing. And the third reason we can't get satisfaction out of changing experience is because we're not here anyway. <laughs> there's no, not me, anatta. There's not some solid, unchanging, internal entity that's called me. Intellectually, don't even try to think about that right now because <laughs> thinking about it can make you crazy. I don't mean really crazy, but a little crazy. Has that ever happened? You start to think about how can there not be me? Now, the more you think about that, what experience gets stronger? Doubt. Yeah, doubt. That's a good one. That gets stronger. For me, what gets stronger is the sense of me. How can there not be a me? 
I feel me really clearly. Now there's not me, there's a, I really want to understand why there's no sense of me. And it just gets, anyway, explore it. And what, and I'm, I'm going kind of fast, I'm giving like a huge overview here, but the habits again that we've been exploring here that we can really see more easily moment to moment, the, the habits, the tendencies that arise in our mind at times, not always, that when they're not seen, have the function of basically distorting perception. Again, it's um, Dingo Kensi again. When sense organs encounter an object, sort of like this glass or the vase or a sound or a body sensation, the only part the object itself plays is to initiate the process of perception in the consciousness. So there's this, it initiates seeing, and there's consciousness, right? From then on, as your mind reacts to the object, influenced by the accumulated habits and past experiences, the whole process is entirely subjective. When your mind is full of anger, the whole world can seem to be a hell realm. Have you noticed that? When your mind is peaceful, free from clinging or fixation, you experience everything as primordially pure. And so that's just really an interesting thing to explore simply with awareness, because awareness can see this. And we don't, if you don't take it personally, but we're kind of like, wow, this is an investigation into how perception and how the mind works what's clear recognition and what's not, what's suffering and what's not, not out of some personal failing, but out of interest. It's just fascinating. So, of course, the main things that that we can notice are when there's clinging, greed in the mind, when there's ill will, hatred, some form of aversion or fear in the mind, and when there's me, me, me at the center of it in the mind. So just to give very simple examples, because these are arising, they're habits. They're arising for all of us much of the time. It's nothing we need to hate or be afraid of or identified with, but really see how it works. As, as one of my teachers says, you know, we can just see that's just greed doing its job, mindfulness doing its job, anger doing its job. So what's greed's job? <laughs> when greed is there, wanting in the mind, right? It's just that sense of, you know, this is going to make me happy. Leaning towards the pleasant, we've talked about that. But the function, its job is to kind of blind us, you know, bring us into a kind of a tunnel vision. My brother used to have this, uh, a hound dog, really a lovely, very sweet, friendly dog. But it was bred for hunting, so its was nose was so sensitive. And I really, it, it was just enthralled to that nose. It had no freedom from being, you know, caught up in sense. I really felt for the dog. So when it would come in the house, you had to, like, if I was visiting, I had to hide anything in my suitcase and zip it, anything that had any kind of human scent on it. 
or any kind of garbage. Every time they went out, every waste paper basket, every garbage, every food had to be locked away because that dog would come in the house and its nose would just pull it to every new scent, to every kind of food, to every kind of human thing. Dirty underwear, it's in the suitcase ripping it out, you know? <laughs> Serious. You leave it alone, it's in the wastebasket, ripping up every piece of Kleenex and toilet paper. And just enthrall it like it had no choice. It had no tr training, forget about it. It had no choice. I really feel like that's craving, you know? That's craving. And the promise of it is, it's really going to make us happy. And the delusion is we, we don't see it. We don't see that. So I have a very good friend, a very wise friend, who is a self-admitted craving type, meaning that's where the mind tends to go when left alone. And this person um, loves cookies. Just a couple of cookies after lunch. Got to have those couple of cookies, but that's all. So one day we were sitting having a discussion about this, you know, basically about samsara, which is like wanting and getting and not getting either way, then you're not happy anymore, and wanting again and getting or not getting either way, and then you're not happy again, and on and on and on. That's one description of the hound dog. That's one description of our lives. That's one description of all the rounds of rebirth, if you want to go that far. It's not really uplifting. But we don't <laughs> tend to see the big picture. We just stay in. This cookie's going to make me happy. So I was saying to my friend, yeah, but this is samsara. This is greed. He goes, what if you don't get the cookie? He goes, no, I get the cookie. I eat it. It's over. There's no craving. It's fine. I said, well, what if you don't get the cookie? He says, I'll always get a cookie. <laughs> and he knew what he was saying. You know, on one level he meant it, but he knew. And that's, that's it, isn't it? I don't get this one. I'll get the next one. Let's not look too closely at this thing. <laughs> so that's actually greed or wanting's job. It seduces us with its promise. And it makes, it, it keeps us from seeing accurately. You know, I'll get into that again in a minute. Aversion, dosa, resistance, fear, just the opposite, isn't it? Just kind of a, the, the attention tunes into something that's unpleasant or we don't like, and then almost can get fixated on that. And again, as I say, what, what we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we form views and opinions, and it leads into moods, and we're really lost in that whole world of ill will, whether it's towards ourself or towards another. Have you noticed that? It happens a lot on retreat just as wanting does, which thank God we're in silence. But with the roommates, right, with other people in the room, we, we know all of this. And so many people here. What's great about having several days in a retreat and where you can't really get out of the situation, you know? Sometimes it's, it's, I'm not saying it's great to have all roommates when we're not used to it, but it's a wonderful way to learn. And I'm just saying this pie in the sky. Someone really said this to me today. I'm not just making it up. Days and days and days of aversion and self-blame or thinking the roommates hate you because you're bothering them or you're hating them because they're bothering you or they're doing it on purpose because or I'm doing it on, you know, all of that, right? And when you feel like that and you're really sort of believing the story, don't we? The story's either that they're really bad, horrible people or the story is I'm a bad, horrible person. 
or the story is it's Spirit Rock's fault for putting us together. There's some, <laughs> some story. And we believe it. And then ill will like is that subtly the attention just keeps focusing on that unpleasant experience which then feeds the negativity. And we get lost in that. And just like Dingo Kensi says, you know, the whole world becomes a hell realm. So I notice times if I'm kind of grumpy and I'm, I'm, I'm walking up somewhere and I'm grumpy, you say, nice sky. Yeah, look at those ants. Ah, cold. Okay, the sun is setting. Another sunset. Come on. What are you all looking at the sunset? <laughs> Give me a break, you know. Last night it was so beautiful, the sunset, and tonight it's just, eh. Or like Wes was saying last night, he goes, I was sick of all those beautiful red sunsets. I'm loving this one that's just kind of gray in a cloud. But anyway. <laughs> but so when, and then when that ill will goes away, and this is what can happen, suddenly the perception clears. And we see, oh, first of all, the noise the roommate's making is just noise. It's not even unpleasant after a while. All the reactions in the mind, they fall away because the stories, the thoughts about it fall away. We stop resisting the unpleasant, and the world becomes primordially pure. That sense if you go in the dining room and instead of, oh, these people, they've got to fight, just hmm, everybody's just doing the best they can, <coughs> trying to eat their oatmeal, whatever it is they want. They're getting oatmeal all together. I just love everybody sharing this pot of oatmeal. You know, it just the world becomes much purer. Did the situation change so much? But the space in our mind did. And the third, the delusion aspect, which is part of it's just not noticing at all. When we're spaced out, obviously we don't know what's going on. We're not going to recognize accurately. But the other delusion aspect, and the one that's, I think, really more at the bottom, underneath, subtle, but pervasive, is this tendency to perceive experience in the world, not every moment, because nothing's every moment, but frequently, through the lens of me. And you might notice thought is a really uh, good way to notice this, because it shows up in thought a lot. So just see how many thoughts after a perception before it's about me. Let's see how many. That sunset's so beautiful. Here I am looking at the beautiful, right? <laughs> it's not bad, but we can just notice it. But we don't notice it. We think, well, this, I mean, when, and someone said today, what, what do you mean you're talking about? We're talking about our self-story, you know, as if there's one story. I just want you to check tonight, tomorrow. It's fun. It's not about a good or a bad thing. It just can be fun because even this self-story don't take it personally. Everybody's mind is making up a story. How many different stories? About one per perception. You know, oh, here I am looking at the sunset. Maybe you go further in real thought. I'm so peaceful, you know. Or maybe then you go, oh, I'm so grumpy and I'm not appreciating this sunset. I've been so grumpy all day. In fact, my whole life is one of grumpiness and colors. I'm such a person filled with ill will. And all your memories, right? And you walk in here and you sit down. You've forgotten all of that within three minutes. Maybe you're still grumpy and there's a sound and you go, oh, that person, how can they do it? And it's bothering me. But that's a new story. Or it's just calm. 
or there's some wanting. You know, there's a potential of a cookie, or you're thinking about something else. Or it's just, often it's just quite um, innocuous, like that, here I am looking at the sunset. I wonder what's for lunch. <laughs> what am I going to wear tomorrow? Oh, this skirt reminds me of this and that, you know. And I've seen times when, the, that's when my mind's bored, but I sit in a room wherever I am. I'm always in different, a lot of different places. And it'll kind of go through all the objects that are mine in the room and, and see which objects have to do with which people in my life. Like so-and-so gave me this, and I bought this skirt when I was with so-and-so, and this is from my mother, and I remember when Gavin painted that. And sometimes, you know, it kind of warms my heart because I really get this sense of the interconnectedness. But also it's telling myself my Carol story, you know. It's just innocuous, but just notice it. So notice the sense of me, me, me. And see how it's impermanent. It's changing. There's nothing wrong with it. It's functional. But when we don't notice it, we assume it's steady state. We assume it's the same me. How many different stories have you been through in these seven, six, seven, however many days it's been? Millions, probably. I mean, it's hard to imagine you've just had one story running the whole time. But if we don't look at it, it doesn't feel, well, I'm the one thinking all these stories, right? What are you talking about? I'm the one thinking all of these. But then there's plenty of times where you're not aware of I'm the one. So our tool here, we don't have to figure this all out. I'm bringing it up not so you figure it out, but just to help us uh, just maybe drop in a seed of noticing. Because what's so amazing about the tool of mindfulness, of awareness, what we've been calling just kind awareness, that awareness itself, becoming aware of that wanting mind, that hound dog mind, become aware of maha grumpiness, become aware of fear, become aware of me, me, me. Mindfulness itself in that moment isn't grumpy. Mindfulness isn't filled with greed. Mindfulness isn't me, me, me. It's really just pure like a mirror that reflects what's happening with kindness, with acceptance, without judging. And mindfulness can recognize anything, anything. So often we, 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 our habit is to give all our attention to trying to fix the things, you know, too much me here. I want to get rid of the me. Too much wanting. I'm going to stop wanting as of now, you know. <laughs> I've decided ill will is really suffering. I get that, so I'm giving it up. I'm giving up ill will for Lent. You know, how long does that last? But mindfulness just can notice all of it, all of it. And so really the point I'm trying to hammer home is through the steadiness of this mindfulness, and I hope you get it that that's what this whole retreat's been cultivating, you get, does that, has that been like coming through? <laughs> I hope it has been coming through. The steadiness of mindfulness, this non-reactive, non-judgmental, non-adding anything extra attention, but fullness of attention to moment after moment of experience, physical and mental, is what is the condition that allows wisdom, right view, wise understanding, to emerge by itself. Things as they have come to be, 
the causes and conditions for wisdom arising in a moment in the mind is the steadiness of mindfulness, the sincerity of intention. It's out of our control, but it absolutely happens. It's just natural. It's just nature. That's how wisdom works. And so with the steadiness of attention, what happened, I'm moving from thought to wise intention now, with the steadiness of mindfulness, the wisdom that arises in the face of greed, in the face of ill will or fear, or in the face of um, cruelty, is that these habits, which are called unwise intentions, unwise not because you're bad and it's, and it's for you to explore yourself, but because it brings further confusion and suffering when we're identified, when we're caught in them, and then when those intentions lead to action. When greed leads to action, it brings further confusion and suffering. Now, don't believe me. You have to bring in mindfulness and just look. Watch greed doing its job. Watch the thoughts in the mind. Watch what actions it leads to. And see for yourself over and over. It's the looking that lets us see how things are. It's not deciding greed is bad and I'm a bad person. We have to really see it. And what's so cool, this is what I, I love about the, um, the elegance of it. When the steadiness of awareness, I'm just watching, wanting, 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 wanting. And it's easier to do it with little things on a retreat. You have more space. You're not so scattered. And stuff does seem a little more important here than it might at home. You know, if the salad runs out, it's a lot bigger of a deal. <laughs> so you can notice the wanting. And so here, the job is just to bring steady, steady, steady mindfulness. And through the steadiness of mindfulness, it starts to break up because we see, oh, it's always changing. It's always changing. When we see the changing nature, when we recognize over and over the ephemeralness, the fleetingness of pleasant experience. Yeah, pleasant experience is pleasant. And there's lots of pleasure and gratification and happiness. Sure, that's true in life. We're not saying there's not. Appreciate it. Enjoy it. And I'm even just talking about sensual pleasure and even the, the deep gratification of wise intention, of compassion, of metta, of generosity. But just, you know, getting that nice salad when you're hungry and eating it and appreciating the taste, nothing wrong with that. And we're really present. And then you chew, and it tastes good. And how long does that taste last? If you're really present, pretty soon you're just like gumming that food and swallowing it because <laughs> you want the next good. It doesn't last long, the flavor, does it? Do you ever notice that you're going for the next fork and you haven't even swallowed yet? So we're just noticing that. As we start to see just naturally that ephemeral nature of pleasant, the changing nature, the, the, the clinging of thinking, this is going to do it for me, naturally eases out. Not because we think it should, but because it doesn't make sense. When yata bhuta, when we recognize things as they are, in that moment, and just in that moment, it's not forever, but in that moment, clinging lets itself go because it doesn't make any sense. So, for example, I'm standing in line and there's no more salad. And you think, well, it's easy for me, I'm a teacher, I can go get some if I want. That's true. 
but on retreat, too. I remember my first three-month retreat. I was very young, and I, you know, we'd, we'd all go and, you know, on the food at lunch. That's a big, you know, you know. And there was one guy who would come strolling in 20 minutes late every day. Some stuff would always be out. Some would be there, but some would be gone. And I would think, God, this guy must be enlightened. That's really what I thought. He must be. Just come strolling in 20 minutes, and, and this is gone, and that's gone. And sometime later now, I can see there's times I'll be in line, and I see that, that, whatever it is, the bread's about to be gone, and there's more people ahead of me than there are pieces of bread. <laughs> and I can watch the wanting, and I'm not saying I should or shouldn't. I'm just watching. I'm not even watching. Awareness is watching. And the wanting, and, uh, it's so unpleasant. It's so painful. And the mind is, the bread doesn't matter. The wanting doesn't matter. It doesn't you know, say all that, but it just lets go. And there's peace. There's peace. The bread wouldn't really give you peace anyway, trust me. You eat it, you want more, or you ate too much, or uh, uh, you know, it's gone. You're allergic to gluten and you ate it anyway, uh, whatever. That peace that comes from seeing clearly is priceless. Well, that's available at any time of any day, and we don't make it happen. But the steadiness of mindfulness allows it. Same with seeing through. So anyway, the three wise intentions, I've got to at least get to them before the end of the talk. The three (laughs) wise intentions is with this clear seeing, naturally, greed naturally transforms through renunciation to this natural just releasing of the wanting to generosity. It's a natural manifestation of wisdom. We don't have, I mean, and then we can choose to cultivate it. I'm not saying that, but I just want to really trust when the mind is recognizing accurately, letting go in generosity is our natural response. In the face of ill will, like ill will at something, aversion to something, ill will to something, with clarity, with wisdom, with the steadiness of awareness, that naturally transforms to friendliness, to metta. And the same with cruelty, naturally transforms to compassion. And the cruelty doesn't have to be really, you know, you want to you know, really go out and hurt somebody, but it can just be when someone's in pain, you want to get out of here, you know, subtle. Naturally transforms to compassion, the ability to be present with an open heart and mind present with suffering, your own or another's, with that open heart, that sense of connectedness. This is the natural response of the wise mind and heart when recognizing accurately. This is really what's so, I think, beautiful about the way the Buddha figured this all out. So as Larry spoke so beautifully last night, the intentions with which we act really transform the world. And we can bring our awareness to intentions, absolutely. And I'll talk a minute about that. But I just, I want to just keep emphasizing that even though the wanting and the ill will and the sense of me, me, me are so, they seem so, they are so familiar, right? They seem so normal and natural. It's often where uh, the tendency of our mind and heart may go for refuge, right? I'm unhappy, I want something. Things are wrong, ill will naturally comes up. It's a habit, but it's not the deepest nature of truth. And the tendency for the intentions 
that lead to thought, speech, and action to come from generosity of hearts and minds, to come from friendliness and metta, to come from compassion, is really the much truer reflection of our nature. And when we talk about you know, thoughts just coming and going and the emptiness of mind, you think, how do we, how do we function? I'm moving into intention now. When a thought coheres into, it becomes, it, it comes together with that little movement. Intention is this little movement of heart and mind that leads to speech and action. You can, you can sometimes feel it's a little uh. It's a, there's a word in Pali, Chaitanya. It's talking about a particular mental state on a, on a moment-to-moment level. Just a little uh. And that can come together with love, It can come together with metta. It can come together with wanting. It can come together with generosity. And when the Buddha talked about um, skillfulness or unskillfulness, wholesomeness or unwholesomeness of action, he said often, by action, by kama, kama just means action, I mean intention, that the seed of the wholesomeness, the unwholesomeness, the, the juice, excuse me, of any action of speech, mind, body is in the intention. Our tendency is to look at and evaluate by the results, isn't it? Because that's what we see. But that's the thing that's really out of our control. The intention, what's the motivation for doing something is really where the alignment with the way things are, or the misperception and the confusion and the suffering lies, and what leads to more peace, what leads to more suffering. So when, when Larry spoke last night, I was saying, or saying doing something uh, really with the overarching intention to bring more good into the world, you know, maybe to do something for homeless people, to work with the environment, and in our mind, the idea is to really do something good. But, but somehow, we get so caught up in anger, in fear, in self-righteousness, that the actions themselves, the motivation with which we're doing them, is leading into more anger, leading into more greed, leading into more hatred. Even if the result seems to be what we want, in terms of what's really opening us to to peace, to liberation from suffering, that's not a wholesome action because the intention is increasing hatred and greed. The exact same action from looking outside, as Larry said, so well, could really be done from metta, from compassion, from kindness. A world of difference. So to bring it back here, because I just want to... like I said, use the retreat. Experiment. Do something simple like walking from here to the dining room. And walk, wait until the lunch bell rings. Or If you're always first, wait five minutes. If you're always last, go first. And really see what it's like walking to the lunchroom with that wanting, with that whatever it is you feel. If you hate going, go right away and hurry and see how that feels. Another time, do the same walk to the lunchroom, but just with a sense of appreciating your body for being able to walk. Just a sense for that moment of just feeling the earth, not to be mindful, but just to appreciate 
that we're alive and we can walk. The action's the same. The intention's so different. Just noticing that as we move through the day can really start to have a profound effect. And when, as I say, the, the unwise intentions of greed, of ill will, of cruelty naturally transform, that in, just in the, as thought, that naturally leads to action. And when we act from wise intention, just as, as when we explore on, on these unwholesome states, if you're really looking, this is my, my, what I know, but you look for yourself, don't believe me, it leads to more suffering. When we act from generosity, from metta, from compassion, we're really there in it. It's onward leading. It brings so much happiness that we want to do more. Just a little story. I was in Burma recently with a few friends, and we went, uh, uh, one of the monks where we were staying told us about two monks who had just started a new little, their own little monastery just down the road. And they were interesting because these two guys had become monks in their middle life, like in their 30s. And they had this little poor, dusty plot of land. They didn't have much of anything. And the monk who was our friend, he said he had gone and talked to them, and they'd become monks, but they didn't really know what to do with themselves. They, they didn't have like a real teacher. And uh, they had, one had been a businessman, and the other one had been a captain in the armed forces. And they weren't kind of like your, what you think of as these spiritual guys, really. So our friend, the monk, said, they're just kind of sitting around in this really dusty, poor place without much of anything, being monks and not knowing what to do with themselves. <laughs> and he said, our friend suggested to them, so why? He said, why don't you? You're both educated men. You know, you've been to college, you know. And, and there's lots of poor children in this area. And in Burma, most kids need after-school tuition just to be able to pass, even in grade school. And they have to pay for that. And these poor kids mostly can't even afford to go to the school. Never mind, can they pay for the tuition? So he said, why don't you offer some free tuition to the kids? So the monks kind of said, OK, OK. So we went to visit them. And they had started doing this. And they had like above 100 little kids would come every afternoon when school got out at about 4 and come early in the morning, and we went over. And it was so cool. These two guys, they're kind of, if you'd met them without knowing this story, they would have looked like what I used to think of as like a schlock monk, you know. They chewed betel nut, so their mouths, betel nut, you know, it's not a good look. It's like, <laughs> it rots your teeth, you're dripping red juice all the time, you just look really, I mean, really. And so monks that are nuns that chew betel nut, you kind of immediately, and this is a perceptual thing, right? My, one of my friends, she has such a thing about any monk that chews betel nut. Immediately bad monk. Her mind just does that, you know. So this was really good for her. So, well, bad monk. These guys are just sitting. And there were like these hundred kids. And they were loving it. And the two guys were loving it. And then we were talking to them because um, my friend Daria, she speaks fluent Burmese. And it was like, really, the, the, the younger one was more vocal. And he had been a businessman um, selling, I think, beer and other kinds of stuff. And he'd had to get his parents' permission, even at age 39, to become a monk. And they were saying, oh, now I see. To do something for others, this generosity, it's making me so happy. He said, I feel like I wasted the first 35 years of my life. He was like born again. 
but in a really beautiful way. You say, I never knew how wonderful it is to be able to do something for others. And they said, and so I'm so happy to help these kids. And the kids were happy, and they were sitting there teaching them. And he said, and if, if, if there's no more I can do here, I know I'm going to spend the rest of my life. I'll find another place, and I'll go there. And, I mean, they were living in dust. They didn't have a well, you know. They were just a little lean-to shack. They had nothing. And he was just, and then he came over to visit us later because we offered money to build a well, you know. And he came over very detailed how much it was going to cost. And just going on again about how he just felt like his whole life had purpose, how happy being able to offer something made him. And from that, he was appreciating the Dharma more and more. He hadn't really studied Dharma much, but he was appreciating it more and more. That, that happiness of the generosity leads to more generosity, leads to more mindfulness, leads to more wisdom. It's just a natural flow in that way. So same with metta, same with compassion. Oh, I had so much more to say, but never mind. So just this sense of, I guess all I'd want to leave you with is this sense of trusting the, the profound, amazing nature of this simple moment-to-moment awareness. That things are already as they are you are already, your true nature is free from greed, hatred, confusion. The natural effect of wisdom is to act from generosity, from kindness, from compassion. And there's no one here or anywhere that is somehow so weird or twisted of a person that that's not their nature. When we sit this morning and it's just thoughts coming and going in the space of awareness, that's an, just an opening into exploring that. That's not just true for some people and not for others. But when the mind's caught in greed or stories about me, we can't notice it, that's all. But we can notice the greed. We can just be aware of the greed and notice that awareness isn't greedy. And knowing in terms of wise action, in terms of acting from wholesome intention, there's not any one way it's supposed to look. You know, it's not like the results should be like this or it will be the same for each of us. So just to end with this one story from a a video I saw of Sony Rinpoche going to visit some nuns in Tibet. Maybe some of you saw I think it's called Blessings. He went with some Western women, and they went to visit called these nuns of Nang Chen in an area high in Tibet where um, a whole series of nunneries had been for you know hundreds of years and during the cultural revolution maybe was that 20 years ago 30 years ago the nunneries were destroyed and the nuns um, had to leave so they were very committed nuns and different things happened to them some of them were put in prison but some of them the way they chose to respond was to go run and hide in caves way up in the hills so they were they were hidden where the where the Chinese Communist government couldn't get to them because it wouldn't allow, let them, allow them to remain nuns, destroy the nunneries, rip them apart. So some went and hid. Had very tough 20 years. Some died of starvation and hardship. Some barely managed to survive. Other ones in prison because they wouldn't disrobe. Other ones had to disrobe, and maybe they went back to their family. And they said they, they felt that they lived as secret nuns. You know, they were just living a normal life, disrobed, acting like in normal ways. But in their hearts, in their minds, they considered themselves as nuns. 
And so just uh, when Sonia went back, the things had kind of loosened. And so all the nuns were now allowed to come back and start rebuilding their nunneries. And so they were all coming back from being secret nuns or hiding and starving in the hills, or they were released from jail. And so they were just documenting how now they could put on their robes again, come together as a community, as a sangha, and rebuild these nunneries. I mean, they're dragging stones up these giant mountains by hand, rebuilding the nunneries. But how there was no one way that they should have acted from that, but they had this depth of pure intention a deep aspiration of what was really important for them that was the guideline in their life. How they manifested and brought their actions into alignment with it was different for each one. But it's such a thread that runs through and you get a sense of what's really important. And then they ended it, that, that, and that's all in this talk, by saying, okay, you just, we can take up the cameras and visit the most senior nun, the most enlightened of us who lived in some little, little hut, you know, way up at the top. And I go up to see her, and I know she looked about 120. Uh, just really, I mean, seriously. Just lying in a bed, and spinning the prayer wheel. And her eyes, as I remember, so bright and so clear. And she said, you know, all I can do is lie in this bed. Can't walk, can't do anything. So what I do, I'm spinning my prayer wheel, and all day, all night, all I'm doing is generating thoughts of, may all beings everywhere, may they be happy, may they be peaceful, may they be free from suffering. But wow, what a life. I'm not saying it should be our life, but there's as many different ways to manifest as there are people. And it comes from the intention right thought, right intention, seeing accurately, right view, and then it'll manifest through us as our personalities. So may we all, may all beings be well, peaceful, and free from suffering. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.